Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So for the, the last few months, you've heard me talk about this season of Trinity Tide as a time where we focus on our growth and our sanctification in Christ, our sanctification as Christians. Trinity Tide is about half of the year, and we don't have any significant events from our Lord's life going on in Trinity Tide. Rather, we focus on our growth. We spend half of the year focusing on growth. Well, two years ago, as I was driving our bishop to the airport on the day that he installed me to be your rector, he recommended that I do preach through the book of Ephesians during an upcoming ordinary time season. So that's what we're starting today. Because you see, Ephesians is ideal for one of these seasons of growth, these seasons of sanctification. There was no pressing moral or theological issue in Ephesians that St. Paul had to correct. There wasn't a real major reason for writing the book, unlike Corinthian, the epistles to the Corinthians and some other ones. And also, unlike Romans, Ephesians is short enough that you could read the whole thing or listen to it in less time than it takes to watch your favorite show on Netflix. So that, that makes it work really well with the church year as well. Ephesians is Christianity 101, the spiritual and theological foundations of our faith. And we often need to be reminded of those foundations. The beloved hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I don't know about you, but that rings true for me. As such, I'm eager to get into this epistle with those foundations. So let's open our Bibles to Ephesians 1, beginning at the beginning with the first verse. Ephesians 1, uh, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the first things we notice when we read the Bible is that it is first and foremost God's story. God is the central character and the central actor in the scriptures. When we get to the New Testament, we particularly focus on God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that the Old Testament was about him as well. But the Bible is also the story of, of God's people, the family that God creates and calls to belong to him, to follow him, and to be blessed by him. So St. Paul begins the epistle by saying that he is an apostle by the will of God. The family secret of God's will or God's choice is the focus of this first part of chapter 1. And you, all, you will notice also that he calls his audience the saints who are in Ephesus. When St. Paul calls Christian saints, he's speaking about that family that God has made, whether they are currently here on earth fighting the good fight or whether they have entered into their reward in heaven. Oftentimes in our tradition, we only think of the saints as those, those dead folks who are before the Lord, who have entered their reward, who lived exemplary lives. But St. Paul uses that a bit wider. The word saint means one who has been set apart. That is, the saint, a saint is one who, whom God has chosen to belong to him. So if you have been united to Christ by faith and by baptism, St. Paul would call you a saint. 
So let's pick up in verse 3 to see how this idea of the family secret unfolds. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Notice two key words related to God's will in this passage, chose and predestined. There may be no greater cause of theological controversy than the debate between predestination and free will. We just spent a half an hour talking about it in, in Sunday school, and um, it, is, it is a confusing doctrine, it, it's, and that's okay. In fact, I've run across just secular novels, secular TV shows, when they bring up Christianity, that's always something they bring up, uh, predestination or free will, predestination or free will. The reason this becomes so controversial is that it brings up questions as to whether we're just robots before God, whether we have any choice in our walk with Christ at all. After all, if it was predestined, why do we pray? Why should we evangelize? Why put any effort into our Christian faith at all? And that word predestined does mean, that Greek word that gets translated as predestined, does mean that it was decided beforehand. It does mean that it was predetermined. Well, to answer those legitimate concerns, we want to look at a few of the other details from the passage. As we talked about in Sunday school, as Charlie pointed out, we need to stick to the scriptures when we talk about this issue. So let's look at some of the details in our passage. First of all, notice that in verse 4, it says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is, God's choice of us, his predestination of us is in Christ. That's the whole context for this choosing. In verse 5, it says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. When it comes to the doctrine of election, we're speaking of God choosing us to be in his family. My daughters didn't choose to be part of my family. It just kind of happened that way, right? It was God's choice. Well, in the same way, ultimately speaking, we don't choose to be in God's family. It's God's choice. That's one of the reasons, by the way, why um, when we baptize infants, it's one of those greatest pictures of God's sovereignty. Those little kids don't get to choose to be baptized either. And so that's one of the reasons why we do that. Okay, so he chose us to be in the family. Um, when, uh, so, no, so no one becomes a Christian because he's smarter than any, everybody else or because he's better than everybody else or because he's more righteous than everybody else or wiser than everybody else. We only become Christians because God made a choice. Earlier, our lector read in, uh, out of our epistle passage assigned for today, it's, we read that no man can say Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Every Christian is in the church because God chose him or her. In our Sunday school class, we, we read from our articles of religion that this doctrine of election, this doctrine of predestination, is 
full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. That's why I like to call it the family secret. It's a mark of God's love for you that he chose you to be in his family. That's why it's encouraging. It means God wanted you here. That's why you're here. St. John Chrysostom puts it this way. He wrote, The one through whom he has blessed us is the one through whom he has elected us. Christ chose us to have faith in him before we came into being. Indeed, even before the world was founded. Also notice that this choice on God's behalf doesn't exist in a vacuum. Look, looking back at verse 4 again, it says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us so that he could change us. He chose us so that we would become new creatures no longer walking arm in arm with the world, the flesh, and the devil, but rather walking as holy and blameless before him. This is where each Christian does have a choice. Now that we have been born again, now that we have been enabled by the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience, we have the responsibility to obey the Lord, to bring him glory in our lives. Let's pick up in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in, things in heaven and things on earth. So again, we see God's will front and center. In these verses, Paul is referring to the big plan of redemption, the big story of salvation. By redeeming sinners through the blood of Christ, God would bless his creation and ultimately unite creation to himself. And indeed, we find it's Christ's blood is the means by which he lavishes upon us the riches of his grace, his favor. 16th century reformer Lancelot Ridley, one of Archbishop Cranmer's six preachers at Canterbury Cathedral, he puts it this way. He wrote, By Christ we are redeemed from the malediction of the law, from sin, death, hell, eternal damnation, and from all captivity and thraldom of the devil, and by Christ are restored to the liberty of the Spirit of God. Christ bringing us by his will into his family results in liberty instead of malediction, that means curse, or instead of thraldom, in other words, slavery. Among the reasons why we needed God to intervene, we needed God to choose us, to elect us, is because the curse and the slavery were too great for us. They were too big. We could not free ourselves we needed Christ to free us. Let's continue in verse 11. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Notice the tying together of our inheritance in Christ 
with God's will in predestining us to become part of his family. As the promised Messiah, our Lord Jesus is the King of Israel, the heir to David's throne. As the Son of God and and God the Son, our Lord Jesus is King of all creation and heir of all things. Our union with Christ through faith and baptism means that we have a share in Christ's inheritance. So how do we know we have this chair? How do we know we have this, this, how we know this is true? Well, it's by the, because we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit ministering to us through God's word and through the sacraments, acting as that down payment for God's promises. Whenever you hear God's word, partake of the Lord's Supper, or recall your baptism, you are experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit as that guarantee of your inheritance in Christ. Notice also there's a we and you contrast in these verses. He wrote, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth. This is another theme we're going to see in Ephesians, that reconciliation of Jew, that's St. Paul's we, and Gentile, that's St. Paul's you. As we go through the series of Ephesians, we're going to see this pop up again and again, particularly three weeks from now. Um, that was the passage that we had to do for my big fat Greek project this this year, and um, so that text already been written. So there we go. <laughs> but and we're, so we're not going to get into details today. But in today's passage, we do see that this we and this you, this Jew and Gentile thing, is tied to the idea of God's choice. The main concept of God's election or God's choice in the Old Testament is God choosing the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to become his special chosen people in the Old Testament. We have, for example, this remarkable passage from Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 10. Um, It goes, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is a God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to, the, to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So why did God pick the Israelites to be his chosen people? Well, it's not because they were the best. In fact... In many ways, according to this passage, they were the worst. Rather, he chose them out of his love for them and out of faithfulness to their fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the new covenant of Christ's blood, that choice, that love, that faithfulness includes you also, regardless of your ancestry. The family has been expanded You've been brought in, adopted as sons, rescued from slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And God keeps those promises. God keeps his covenant. You may have noticed, however, the bit toward the end of the Deuteronomy passage, God repaying those who hate him with destruction. Last week, we talked about 
how the Israelite story is there for our edification so that we wouldn't follow their bad examples in, in many of those stories. Well, in the verse that follows what we just read in Deuteronomy, God says, you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and statutes and rules that I command you today. Just because God chose us doesn't mean we aren't called to live in holiness. That choice does not exclude righteous living. Rather, the opposite is true. If God has chosen you to be in his family, your life ought to reflect being a member of God's family. Commenting on the beginning of our passage in Ephesians, where where this is addressed, St. Jerome says this, he writes, It is asked how anyone can be saintly and unblemished in God's sight. We must reply that God does not say he chose us before the foundation of the world on account of our being saintly and unblemished. He chose us that we might become saintly and unblemished. That is, we who were not formerly saintly and unblemished should subsequently be so. This is why it's so important that he has given us the Holy Spirit. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our heart, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, our hearts are softened to God's word. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we have become new creatures with new desires, new loves. We don't love our sin the way we did before. Rather, we love God. And when those old desires pop up, when that living sacrifice tries to get up off of the altar, it is by the Holy Spirit that we are able to choose God's ways rather than those of our flesh. And when we do sin, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of that sin and drives us to turn back to God in repentance. It's by the Spirit of God that we are set free so that we can be that chosen people. We can live as God's family members with that family secret that we are becoming more and more like Jesus until we await, as we await, his final coming. And we say these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Mm-hmm.